I want to offer my thanks to the students for leading uh, us in worship this morning and in praise and in song. Um, it's, a, it's a big thing. To, uh, it's one thing to kind of just kind of play and, and jam all on your own, but to, to lead is a, whole different, uh, is a whole different thing. It's a horse of a different color, if you will. And, uh, and I praise the Lord, give glory to his name simply just for the way that he's graciously worked in their lives. Um, and continues to do it. It's not anything I've done, uh, but it's all according to what God has done. Um, and let me also say thank you to the, the praise team this morning for uh, graciously allowing them to step in, kind of taking a back seat for a moment um, and letting them uh, lead us. I hope that you were blessed. I know that I was. Um, but I also want to say uh, thank you, especially for that last song, You've Already Won. Uh, because if you're like me, as we've been walking through Romans 12 over the last few weeks, um, and especially in the last two weeks, looking at overcoming evil with good and having to confront and face not just evil within, but the evil without with good, I often feel as though I am fighting a losing battle uh, because my tendency is not, hey, I'm going to, if you, if you, <laughs> If you hate me, I will bless you. Or if you persecute me, I will bless you. That's not my tendency. That's Christ's way. But David's way is more like, listen, just stop. Like, uh, I, want to, I want to do something back, right? And, and if you're like me, which I, I would hazard to guess some of you might be, that, that you find that tendency as well. But I'm reminded by the song that we just sang that this is not a battle that I am fighting on my own. And it is not a battle that is, uh, is pointless or futile. But Christ has already defeated sin. Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in, has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. So we have a, a sympathetic high priest, but we also have a high priest who's faced what we have, have faced and beat it on our behalf and with his help um, and with his uh, empowering spirit, we too can overcome evil with good. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to begin making your way to Romans 12, where we're going to continue to look at this uh, concept, which Paul summarizes in verse 21, to overcome evil with good. We're going to spend today focusing on verse 19 and 20, uh, but our reading this morning is actually going to begin in verse 14. As Brother Wade has uh, instructed us, I think it's important for us to look at the verses of, for today in its larger context, uh, or rather the, the context of a section that it is a part of, beginning in verse 14. So let's read together Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. And then, I, I just think it's great, he follows it up, bless and do not curse. You know, it's almost as if he's anticipating. I know this is kind of wild, but listen, I, you read that right. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be Haughty, that is prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word this morning. And may he be our guide and teacher as we seek to learn more of him in his word. Well, again, we're going to continue with this topic of overcoming evil with good that Paul has uh, introduced to us beginning in verse 14, carrying through 21. And we're going to focus on 19 and 20. And the first thing that we're going to see this morning that when it comes to uh, our efforts of overcoming evil with good, the way we overcome, or at least one of them, according to verse 19 there, we overcome evil by remembering God's love by remembering God's love. Now, you may be looking at your uh, Bible verses there and thinking to yourself, where in the world is it actually talking about God's love here? And it's actually in just the one word that in some translation has it at the beginning of verse 19. Others will have it in the middle of uh, verse 19. And it is that word, that term, beloved. Beloved. In the Greek, I will probably mispronounce it, but in the Greek, this term is agapatoi, agapatoi. And it is a term that simply means dearly loved, dearly loved, or as we have it translated here, beloved. But if you have been in, in church circles long enough, you may have recognized part of that word uh, as the root of the word itself is the Greek term agape, which is the Greek word for supreme love, for perfect love. We've noted in the past that the Greek has several different terms uh, to, that, that we translate love, but they all refer to different aspects of love. And this agape is the supreme and perfect love, and it is the root that we get our term beloved from. So when Paul is saying or addressing them as beloved, he's not just saying that, oh, you are dearly loved, but he's saying you are my dearest and you are supremely loved. It's the word that God the Father used uh, for his son Jesus at Christ's baptism when he says, this is my beloved, this is my dearest, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is not the sole way in which it is used. It's used several times, as we've noted, to one, to refer to Jesus. But it's also used uh, to refer to how believers were loved by God. It was a term that was attributed to them, this title, that you are the beloved of God. Romans 1.7, actually, at the beginning of this uh, letter, Paul says to the, all those in Rome who are Loved or beloved by God and called saints. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes again in another introduction in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, we give thanks to God always for you. 
uh, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. For we know, brothers, loved of God, beloved of God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And again, in Colossians 3, where Paul is giving instruction, he's about to, to shift from this theological to the practical. And he's essentially saying, hey, listen, this is what you're supposed to do. Put on then as God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. And he goes on further from there. So it's a term that we use that was attributed to Jesus by God the Father, but it's also a term which is used for believers in the way in which God views them, which I think is incredible. But it's also a term that is used to refer to mutual love between believers, to the type of love that we should have one for another. So why does Paul use this term? Well, simply put, because Paul loves them. He wouldn't use a term that he did not mean, but Paul actually very deeply loves these believers, and he wants them to know, y'all are my beloved. Y'all are the beloved of God, but I, you are dear to me. And so he uses this term, but I, I also uh, think that it, it, it comes from a desire in Paul to, to see them walk in the truth, but it also comes from a place that recognizes that that which he is about to say, the instruction which he is about to give to them, is not easy. It's admirable on the page, but it is difficult in practice. In fact, it may seem downright impossible when you are within the context. So he wants to remind them that, that that which he is about to say doesn't come from a place of condemnation. It doesn't come from a place of, of just trying to rule it over them. But it comes from this, uh, this difficult instruction, comes from a place of love for them. Have you guys ever experienced someone breaking bad news to you? Have you ever experienced somebody just kind of taking you by the hand and they gently say your name. I can think of my mom when, when just kind of wrestling with some things. Mom, mom would, she would just, she would, anytime she had something like super important and super uh, impactful to say next, she would, she would lead with my name. Say, David, this, this is what we need to do. And so I, I think in, in part, not only is he expressing his love, but he's also saying beloved, this next bit that I'm about to say to you is difficult. But it is essential. It's as if he's trying to soften the blow of this audacious instruction. As if he's saying, beloved, you know I love you. And I know these next words will be difficult to hear because everything within you will resist it. But this is the way that pleases God. Not what you think or feel is right, but this that I'm about to tell you is the way to overcome evil. This is God's way. So he chooses this term because he wants to communicate the next instruction in love. He wants them to remember that this instruction is coming from a place of love and that he himself loves them. But I also think that he uses it because it is true of who they are as followers 
of Jesus. We already noted that this term describes God's love for those who have trusted in Jesus, for those who have been made the children of God, those who are his followers. And so the question then is, well, if, if it's not only Paul saying this is coming from a place of love and I want you to remember uh, uh, that I love you, but I also want you to remember that Christ loves you. Why then would they need to be reminded of Christ's love? Well, one, I think it has to do with the context. We go back to verse 14. Who are we blessing? The persecutor. Those who curse and revile. We're not to curse and revile in return. He says, so if, if we're in the midst, if, if he is speaking to people who may very likely are in the midst, or if they're not in the midst right now, they will be at some point in the midst of persecution. He wants them to remember, not only does Paul love them, but even though things are difficult, God still loves them. The difficulty is not an indication of how God feels toward them. There are those who have little understanding that may think that, that, that because of the difficulty that I'm facing, God must not love me near as much as he does. But that is not the case. God's love does not shift like our circumstances do, but it is constant. And praise God that it is. And so he wants to remind them that God still cares for them. That he still cares for them. And not just that he cares for them, but he also wants them to remember how God has extended his love for them. Because in light of how God has extended love to the believers, that should inform how we should carry out the next instruction. This is what he wants them to remember. Titus 3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who you were. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by, our, by us in righteousness, not because we're any good, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Then He follows it up and summarizes it. Verse 8, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These Things are excellent and profitable for people. So he's saying again, these good works, they stem from what God has done. And so he's, he's saying the way in which God has dealt with you will inform how we are to carry out this next instruction. First Corinthians 6 again also says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Some people like to stop there. They shouldn't. Go on to the next verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God. God has loved us in such a way and extended salvation to us in such a way that it leads to a transformation. 
that it should lead to a Christ likeness. And so what Paul is essentially saying in, in using the term beloved, let's note this, go ahead and note this one more time. He is using a term that expresses his love for them. He is using a term that is, I think, helpful in, in softening the blow or reminding the people that the next instruction comes from a place of love, but he's also using a term that's meant to remind them of God's care and a term that is meant to remind them of the love with which God has loved them so that in light of the way that God has treated you, in light of this new identity that you have been given in Jesus Christ, who you are, beloved, what does he say? Never avenge yourselves. Beloved, Never avenge yourself. Now, we're going to get into this, but man, that is a difficult thing, isn't it? Especially if we're going to consider this context of someone opposing us, of someone cursing us, of someone who has thought that they need to tell me how to drive on the road and they have used their horn. My goodness. That's a special kind of sanctification I haven't mastered yet. Woo! someone reviles you, you never, never avenge yourself. So what's the next way we overcome evil? Well, you overcome by remembering God's love and overcome evil then by never taking revenge. Never taking revenge now, this is actually Paul's second absolute in this passage. You'll notice just a couple of verses before in 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Uh, some actually translate that as never repay evil for evil. And that's what the text says originally. That is an absolute. Don't ever do it. It is not for you to repay another evil for evil. So you would think that maybe verse 17 would cover it. That would have been enough. But the reality is that Paul is offering the second absolute, the second never, because he is looking at things from a different angle. So the question that we have to answer then is what does he mean by avenge yourself? If you do a quick Google search, you'll find that the definition for avenge is to inflict harm in return for an injury or wrong done to oneself or to another. Blue Letter Bible says that the term used here means to vindicate, to retaliate, to punish, to punish. See, that's the key there. In fact, what you may also notice is that when it says, uh, uh, do never avenge yourself, he then goes on and says, but leave room for wrath because... Uh, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. So it's equating avenging yourself with taking vengeance or revenge. So what do we mean by vengeance? What do we mean by taking revenge? Well, uh, it is, again, retaliating. It is inflicting harm in return for an individual. But it also, it's this idea of, of deciding the punishment of an individual. Jay Adams helps us when he says, vengeance is paying someone back for his evil deeds in wrath. It's more than retaliation or striking back. There is a planned, deliberate, calculated aspect to it. He also notes that vengeance is a judicial thing. 
It is taking it upon yourself to not only strike back, but to determine what an individual deserves for the harm that they have done to you or to someone you love. So when Paul says, never avenge yourself, it's, it's kind of goes like this. He's saying, beloved, listen, there is never a time when you as an individual may assume the authority to strike back and decide what kind of punishment another deserves for their actions. Now, that is a bold statement. And so, again, we have to remember it within the realm of its context, specifically that of persecution. Someone who, someone who has made it their job to oppose you, right? So why would Paul give this instruction? Why would he need to give this instruction to believers? Why would he need to let them know, hey, guess what? As personally as you, as an individual, you don't have the right, you don't have the authority to avenge yourself. There's never a time when you should be doing this. Why would he give this instruction? Well, one sense is because of our enemy. And so I want to say first, the enemy within. God has placed within us a desire for justice. And it's good. And it's righteous. And we actually covered a little bit of this uh, a couple months ago in our sermon series, Triggered, when we started talking about anger and how that is an indicator of, of something that God has placed within us that indicates to us and to our bodies that, hey, an injustice has occurred, something bad has happened, something needs to be made right. And that, that, that design has been placed there to motivate us to constructive action, to resolve, to bring about uh, a constructive action. But the problem is, because of our sinfulness, because of our fallenness, it's not so much, it's not always constructive, but it's more often destructive. And the other thing on top of that is it's not just a situation where, hey, has, has, where, where an, a genuine wrong has occurred, but sometimes our anger, our fuse is short, and it's just kind of set off by an inconvenience, not necessarily a judicial wrong. So we've got this desire, which is right, which is good, that God has placed within us, but we are corrupted by sin. When we are wronged, we tend to not only want to get even and to strike back, and to strike back, but to strike back in such a way that it's hard enough that whoever uh, hurt us, number one, knows that they've offended us, and number two, won't ever do it again. If you doubt this, ask your brother or sister. All right? Ask your brother or sister. Um, or, even better, have a punching battle with your brother and sister. When I say a punching battle, I'm not talking about the face, I'm talking about the arm, okay? All right? So when, when a sibling punches you, what is the thing that you want to do back? Punch them back, right? And harder so that they know, you know, really who's boss, but also because they punched you. And that was not nice. And I didn't like it. Don't ever do it again. So we've got the enemy within that kind of corrupts this tendency for justice. But there's also the enemy without. The persecution that we noted just a few moments ago that if the, if the Romans were not facing persecution already, then there would be a time when it would come. And, and so what is the, the nature of this enemy without, this persecutor that, that Paul is referring to? Well, he's not referring to a casual nuisance. He's not referring to someone who's just plain annoying. But he's using a strong term. He's using an enemy. Someone who has made it their job 
to make you miserable, to put you out, to inconvenience, and does so not from a heart of innocence or a heart that says, uh, well, I didn't mean to do this, but a heart that's just like, you know, I like to stir this pot, and I like seeing you get triggered, and I like fill in the blank. There is a malicious intent behind the enemy here. Again, If you doubt, you will ever face someone like this, someone who made it their job to come against you. We have to remind ourselves of what Jesus told his disciples the night of his betrayal. He says, remember the word that I said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also what? Persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. Our focus here is that of if they persecuted Jesus, so they're going to do us. Now, again, when I look at this text and I see this this uh, this absolute that says never avenge, there's still part of me that's kind of like, you sure? Are you really sure about that? Because I want to do it. There's still part of me who wants to do this, right? That, that wants to take it upon myself to say, this person's a jerk and they need to know it. All right? So why can't we take revenge personally? Simply put, God says he can't. He says don't do it. Now, one of the commentators I mentioned, and, and some of you guys may be thinking about this as well, is, is in, in Romans chapter 13, uh, Paul's going to talk about uh, officials that God has appointed as avengers of wrongs, right? So is, is, Paul, is God then saying that there's some who can avenge and some who can't? Uh, yeah, kind of. But really what it has to do is with the realm and the circumstance. There's never a time where you personally determine the punishment of, of an individual uh, because you are maliciously trying to get back at them. But God has appointed those um, such as law enforcement who enforce the law. They are the avenger. But this is not what we're talking about. This is personally. And God says, it is not your right. How do we know that? Verse 19, when Paul quotes Deuteronomy, he says uh, that the Lord is speaking and he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Vengeance belongs to God. And as we've said in youth, the creator gets to what? Define the design. And so God also in creating this justice system, he has determined that vengeance belongs to him. And he is the only one with the authority and the ability to carry out proper vengeance. But I find it interesting, you know, if we pause and we we look at this, verse and we consider the source if there was anybody who had the right or would have been justified in taking vengeance i think it actually would have been paul well david why do you say that thank you for asking it's his beatings i mean can you think about paul from from where he's coming from someone who is facing persecution on a regular basis who in in first corinthians chapter 11 just gives us a whole list of them and he says listen Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less than one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked night. And a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers of our own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger, 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 Will Robinson, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul should have been the one that had every right to be able to say, hey, and, and by the way, guess what? <laughs> you can get back at them. I've been there. I've been exactly where you're at. And it's fine to get back at them. You'd be completely justified. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, No. Never avenge yourself. Why? Again, why? Well, God has said no. But also because our attempts at vengeance, at deciding the punishment of another, are imperfect. Personal vengeance is without trial and will always be either too severe, more likely too severe, or too small. But God's vengeance, God's punishment is perfect. When God, John Phillips says this, when God avenges a wrong, he does so with perfect equity and justice. Did you catch that? That's good stuff, right? When God avenges a wrong, he does so with perfect equity. It means it's fair and with perfect justice. Never in the spirit of retaliation, which so characterizes human schemes of vengeance. So why not? Because our vengeance is imperfect. But the reality also is this, is if you, if you haven't kind of seen this just yet, our attempts at vengeance don't overcome evil, but they in fact multiply evil. Christians who take vengeance become a lawless person. They take God's law into their own hands and in doing so, become just as guilty as the one whom they're seeking to punish and avenge. There's lawlessness rampant. It doesn't overcome evil, it multiplies it. But I also want to read this to you. This is a, a, another quote by Mr. J. Adams where it says, Whenever you do so, that is, take vengeance, wittingly or unwittingly, as is usually the case, you attempt to arrogate a prerogative that belongs to God. That's a good one. That's like a $5 quote if you want that one. It's not up on the screen. The last part of it is. But if you want the first part, come see me. All right? You arrogate a prerogative that belongs to God. That is, in plain, unvarnished English, stealing. The man or woman who takes vengeance usurps the authority of God or the authority God has reserved for himself. But I'd be justified. But don't you know what they did? You're multiplying evil. You are usurping God's authority. And mind you, it's worth noting that usurping God's authority is exactly what Satan tried to do at the beginning. It was saying, hey, God, I can do a better job than you. It's evil. So what happens when we try to take vengeance? We usurp God's authority. We become a lawless person. We give imperfect punishment without trial. And we simply 
multiply evil. We do not overcome evil with good, but we multiply it. But again, there may be some. And the tendency, folks, is also within my flesh to say, but God, you don't know what they did. Well, I mean, he does, but, but we come from this, this emotional place. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to negate or even to, to diminish these feelings which crop up and which uh, stir within us when injustice has taken place. Those things are valid. But if it pushes us to this place where we're going to be obedient with God, we've got to be careful. But you know what? I imagine that, that when we have this objection that says, God, you don't know what they did. God almost answers with, I know. I know. But it is not your right or your prerogative to take revenge. Even if we may feel justified, even if the planning out well, because again, this vengeance we noted earlier has a, a planning aspect to it. So it's not just a situation of striking back immediately, but it could also include the realm of, of walking away and being like, oh, I am, I am counting these wrongs against you and you just wait. Sleep with both eyes open, good sir. The planning may even feel delightful. But God doesn't want us to make this decision based off our feelings. God wants us to make this decision based off what he says is right. Again, folks, I'm not here to diminish or devalue any injustice that has been done to you. Let me say, if injustice has been done, if something has been done, I'm so sorry. That is a difficult place. Nor am I saying that you will never see justice. God is not saying you will never see justice. But he is saying it is not upon you to take it for yourself. God says he will take care of it. So what am I supposed to do? If I can't take vengeance, what do I do? Left here, you know, twiddling my thumbs. What am I going to do here, God? Well, the text is clear. It says leave it to the wrath of God. So we overcome evil. By remembering God's love, we overcome evil by never taking revenge. And we also overcome evil by trusting God's plan for justice. Trusting God's plan for justice. It says, leave room for God's wrath. The, the term here uh, that is translated leave room in some versions is also uh, translated as give place. So what are we doing? It's we are stepping out of the way. We are surrendering our will, what we may want to do in the moment, and we are saying, okay, God, it's up to you. And in doing so, we are, we are taking a step of faith to trust that God is going to do what he says that he will do. So what does he say? What, what has he said he will do? Again, vengeance is mine. I will what? Repay. I will repay. How can I trust God to bring justice for this wrong done to me? Well, one, he said it, folks. And again, God doesn't mince words. He doesn't just say things flippantly. He's going to say something that he absolutely means. So when he says, I will repay, he means, I will repay. So that's one reason you can trust him. 
The second would be this, is because of his character, because of his nature. God is holy, and because of his holiness, he can by no means let the guilty go unpunished. In, uh, in Brother Ron's uh, Sunday school class this morning, we mentioned very briefly Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did judgment come on Sodom and Gomorrah? Because God is holy and can by no means let the guilty go unpunished. He will repay. How else can we trust him? How else can we know that he's going to do this? Well, there's one more reason. And it is because God has already poured out his wrath and didn't spare any of it on Jesus. If God didn't spare any wrath on the one who was paying for sin, who was completely innocent and undeserving, then he will not spare his wrath on those who are guilty. So what is God's wrath here? Because some of you guys, if you have a KJV, it may just say, leave it to wrath. And the, the, some of the, the translators have added of God later, and the reason they've done that is a clarification. And the reason they've chosen that is because the context context lends to it where it says vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord so it is the wrath of god that we're talking about it what is it what is it we're talking about it is god's perfect total and righteous judgment and punishment against sin and it is reserved for all those who do not turn from their sins to jesus all those who refuse christ John 3, verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son, the one who does not trust in the Son and obey the Son to believe on the one in whom he is sent, that is, the Father is sent, shall not see life. But what does it say? The wrath of God remains on him. And that individual is simply biding time, which is a very, very risky thing to do because you don't even sustain your life. And when you die, you will then be destined to face God's wrath, just wrath against sin. Paul mentions this again in Ephesians 2. He kind of undergirds this and he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this air, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, destined to face God's wrath. Folks, here's the thing. God is holy. He cannot by any means let the guilty or the sinful go unpunished. His holiness will not let him. And so there will come a day if you have not trusted in Jesus, that you will face God's wrath. How does trusting in Jesus make the difference? Let me take a quick aside here. Romans chapter 3 talks about God being able to be the just and the justifier, being able to be the righteous judge and the one who sets the guilty free because God has placed the full weight of his wrath and the full punishment of your sin on his son Jesus on the cross. Jesus came because God loved you. And was not willing that any should perish, but was willing that all should come to repentance. All could be spared from the wrath to come. And the way in which we are spared is by trusting in the punishment or trusting in the death of Jesus. A, a death which was taking on God's wrath 
uh, for me so that I wouldn't have to face it. So God pours out his wrath and can extend grace and mercy to you because someone else took it. So he is the just in that he judges sin in Jesus. He is the justifier, can let you go free, can forgive your sins because someone paid the debt. Have you trusted in Jesus or are you destined for wrath? Don't delay. The Bible says if we trust, then we are saved. So God's wrath, right? Perfect total punishment, righteous punishment against sin. It will be poured out on those who refuse Christ. And it will be poured out for all eternity. It is a serious thing. Again, look to the cross. There God poured out his full wrath on the innocent. And if he did not spare his full wrath on his son, he will not spare it on those who are truly guilty. So when's God going to bring justice on my enemies? Is it going to be just in the wrath to come? Maybe. Or, and this is kind of, again, part of us that's just kind of like, man, this would be awesome. Will it be in a form of a consequence that we get to see? Man, God, that would be really cool. That would be awesome if you do this for me, Jesus. Folks, here's the reality. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when. Because vengeance doesn't belong to you. Vengeance belongs to God. What matters is that we are assured that God will do what he says. So we're not here with this motive, this prerogative of I can get vengeance. Hot diggity. Our motive is trusting God that he's going to do it. Trusting in his plan for punishment. How can I trust him? Because he cares about justice. God has said he'll take care of the matter. He says that there is nothing that he has missed. Everything is under his complete surveillance. That's one commentator put it this way. And he misses nothing. There will be no failures in his justice. But Jay Adams helps us again in not just helping us to see that we can, we can trust him because God cares about justice, but even more so because God cares about you. You've got a partial quote. I'm going to give the full quote to you here. God cares for you. He has not forgotten the wrongs done to you. You are dear to him. Let's just pause for a minute. God hasn't forgotten. Even though these this persecution come, sometimes makes us feel isolated or forgotten. The truth is God has not. He has not forgotten you and he has not forgotten the wrongs done to you. You are dear to him. He will make right those wrongs. He knows you have suffered and he cares. He knows you would like to see justice done now. But he also knows what you don't. Why it is better to wait. Remember those souls under the altar crying out for gen for vengeance, they had to wait. They asked, how long, Lord, how long? And he says a little while. He's referencing Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 11. Listen to this. They must wait till all the purposes of God are carried forth. But the day came when their waiting ended. So too will yours. God will make all things right. God will right all wrongs because he cares for you. Again, if you have any doubts, come see me or go read the book of Habakkuk. That's a good one. That's one of those where Habakkuk's like, 
God, there's a bunch of wrong around here. Where you at? Uh, quick summary, God says, well, <laughs> wrath's a coming. <laughs> and it's through these completely, totally evil people. And Habakkuk is left with a crisis, crisis of conscience where he says, okay, God, awesome, I guess. But those, those folks are even worse than we are. What about them? Habakkuk is, if anything, a very relatable book because it's, it's, it deals with this question, God, what are you going to do about evil? And it answers the question that God's going to take care of it and we can trust him and rely on him to do it. So, we're left to trust God. But I got a problem. I still got an enemy in front of me. I still got a sibling punching my arm, right? What am I supposed to do about those people? Verse 20 tells us, on the contrary, he says, never avenge yourselves in verse 19. Verse 20 says, on the contrary, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. We overcome evil by extending compassion. Paul quotes Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22, which says, If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat, or give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord uh, will reward you. He quotes this to express what believers should do instead of taking vengeance, and that is extending compassion. Now, the first part of this verse seems very radical and something that makes sense and something we can get on board with. It's that, that makes sense when we're talking about compassion. See him hungry, feed him. See him thirsty, give him something to drink. Cool, that's great. But the second part that he quotes, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head, at first glance seems a little out of place. In fact, it, it's almost, if, if we're honest, it's almost like this sort of psychological vengeance that Paul is, is uh, putting out here. That he's saying, hey, you can't do anything to him, but if you do the nice stuff, you're going to make him feel bad. You can at least make him feel bad. And isn't that great? But that's not what Paul's saying. Why would Paul give us this if he said before, why would Paul mean that if he said before, don't ever take vengeance? Don't avenge yourselves. He must mean something else. And so we are helped when we remember that Paul's motive in this passage is what? How do you overcome evil with good? And he uses a, uh, a, a warfare picture in helping us understand that what it means to overcome evil is to completely overcome them. I promise this is the last time I'll quote Mr. Adams, but he helps us with this alternative when he says, remember, Paul has warfare in mind. In his day, they didn't have flamethrowers, but they knew that fire was an effective weapon. If you could get coals of smokeless, undetectable charcoal, as the word here indicates, on your enemy's head, you would effectively put him out of business as an enemy. You would subdue him and overcome him. So Paul is, is not saying here that, man, if you're nice, you're just going to make him guilty. You're just going to make him feel shame. But what he's saying is that your good works are the coals that subdue your enemy. Your good works are the coals that overcome your enemy. 
It means that our motive here, our motive for heaping burning coals on our enemy's heads is not psychological vengeance, but it is overcoming, subduing, and potentially winning your enemy to Christ through the good that we do to him. If we come to this and we say, all right, I'm going to extend that compassion to him and I'm going to make him feel guilty for it. All right, at least I get a little bit of vengeance. We've come with the wrong motive. We've misunderstood what Paul's saying here. Our compassion cannot be malicious because then it is not true compassion. So what kind of compassion do we have here? Well, first, it's kind. It's kind. If he's hungry, feed him. Y'all, have you ever been hungry? I think everybody's probably saying, yeah, right now, let us free. Um, (laughs) But genuinely, have you ever been hungry? Maybe, Maybe you miss lunch, and then someone just graciously, out of the blue, may bring you, I don't know, a cupcake, something like that. What a blessing it is. What a kindness it is. Something that's rare, it would seem, in this day. But this compassion is kind. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This compassion meets a personal felt need. And as such, it must be intentional, decisive, and beneficial to the one with whom we are extending this kindness. Notice that vengeance was that of kind of pre-planned. Hey, I get to get back at them. This is what I'm going to do. This is uh, the opposite. This is pre-planned compassion. How am I going to be kind? It is looking beyond ourselves and looking to the need of the one who has hurt us. So first, the compassion is kind. But second, the compassion is gracious and merciful. Remember, who is this compassion being given to? Our enemy. What do they deserve? Punishment. What are we withholding? Punishment. That's where mercy comes in. And what are we extending? Blessing. And that's where grace comes in. It's a compassion that is kind, a compassion that is merciful, a compassion that is gracious, but it is also a compassion that, again, not motivated by malicious intent, but motivated by love. You look at the list of of descriptors of love in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love that is meant to be exhibited within the body of believers. And part of that, uh, I think it's around verse 7, maybe 6 or 7, it says that love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. You also see when, when Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? He gives two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he gives the second, which is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18, which actually completely, uh, that, that places the love of your neighbor uh, at a complete um, juxtaposition, a complete contrary uh, um, Opposition to taking vengeance. In fact, Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor. It says, I am the Lord. So the compassion is motivated by love. You may have noticed that when I read uh, Proverbs 25, 21, and 22 earlier, I actually 
uh, read a, a phrase that Paul seemed to have left out in, in Romans 12 here. And that phrase is, um, the Lord will reward you. Well, why would Paul leave this out? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, when he's quoting this, he didn't have verses and chapters, all right? So he didn't really, like, leave something out from our perspective. But the second is because I think Paul wants the motive not to be reward, but to be love. And not just any love, but the love of Christ. This compassion that we are called to extend that is kind and merciful and gracious and loving is the compassion that Christ has extended to us. That's where we started, wasn't it? The love of God that has been gracious to us, we then are called to extend that same love and compassion. But one last thing and then we will close. How can I show compassion when they've hurt me? Again, you don't know what they've done, David. I get it. I don't know. But the good news is, again, you are not alone in this fight. If you're a follower of Jesus, the the Spirit of God dwells within you. and, And the Bible tells us that the Spirit develops the fruit of the Spirit within us. And one of... Uh, and and the, the first of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 55 verse 22 is love. God will place this within us. If we'll get out of the way and say, God, I trust you. I trust your plan for justice. But I'm going to need that help to extend compassion. Because I don't feel it right now. The other thing is this, and this is actually quite Um, interesting to think about is that that love is not so much a feeling as it is a decision. I remember years ago, um, one of the times I first heard this may have actually been Brother Ron here at this church when he said, love is a decision. Love is a decision. It is a choice. And it is just as much a choice as retaliation and revenge. God, I'm, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with this stuff in my extended family who, who are, are just having some difficulty understanding that love is a decision uh, uh, just as much as division is. So man, this is hitting home. And, and you better believe that compassion is real difficult to want to have. But extending love and compassion does not require us to feel like it. It requires us to choose it. It's not not feeling, but it is feeding. So we must make the decision now rather than in the moment. When the moment comes, what are we going to do? As we have been faced, as we know that one day, as Jesus has said... That a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. What will we do? How will we overcome evil with good? Will you remember God's love and, and take a moment to rest in it in such a way that it drives you to action, that it drives you to obedience? Will you put the stake in the ground now that says, you know what, as much as I may feel like I want to take vengeance, I'm not going to do it because God says he's going to take care of it. And he loves me and he cares about me and he means what he says. And if he's going to if he says that he's going to do it, then he is going to do it. 
As much as I want to see it now, he's going to do it on his timing and in his way. And I can trust him. And I'm going to choose now that I'm going to extend compassion. Will you choose this today? Father, we come and we thank you that you have extended compassion to us in Christ Jesus, that you have been kind to us when we did not deserve it at all. God, help us in light of such love and compassion that has been given to us. Help us to in turn show it to those around us, to those who oppose us, to those who are close by as well. We ask this in Christ's name.